producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Americans have a huge moral responsibility that's on their shoulders to try and prevent the slide to war. People ask me, what can we do to print a war with Iran, get involved in a local political campaign here in the United States? And the challenge right now is trying to get over this particularly dark moment where it seems like we're on the precipice of a, of a war with Iran. That's Nader Hashemi. And this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Nader Hashemi on the slide to war with Iran. The U.S. and Iran are on a collision course. The name-calling and saber-rattling are ominous. The headline reads, Iran calls U.S. desperate and confused. Trump vows obliteration. Is Iran going to commit suicide by attacking the world's most lethal military? Washington is exerting what it calls maximum pressure on Iran and on anyone who wants to do business with that country. For most Iranians, the punitive sanctions the U.S. has imposed are a form of warfare, albeit the economic kind. The Iran nuclear deal was working just fine, according to the U.N., when Washington unilaterally abandoned it, thus triggering the current crisis and the slide to war. The attitude emanating from Washington is more like that of a bully. You do what I tell you or else. Respectful dialogue is what is needed, not hectoring and badgering. Our guest today is Nader Hashmi. He's director of the Center for Middle East Studies and teaches Middle East and Islamic politics at the Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. He's the author of Islam, Secularism, and Liberal Democracy, and co-editor of The People Reloaded, The Syria Dilemma, and Sectarianization. I talked with him in the studios of KGNU in Boulder, Colorado, on May 28, 2019. I began the interview by asking Nader Hashmi to identify the root cause of Washington's hostility to Iran. Well, fundamentally, Iran uh, has a, an independent foreign policy. And when I say it has an independent foreign policy, I don't mean it has a necessarily good foreign policy, but it has a foreign policy that is independent from um, control, manipulation, dependence on the great powers, in this case, the United States, which prior to the revolution had um, a lot of influence over uh, internal Iranian politics um, um, for reasons that most of your listeners will know because in 1953 the United States installed the regime that was in power for 25 years um, and so I think that's fundamentally the nature of the hostility that Iran um, has a different vision for um, uh, the region's politics that clashes with uh, the interests of the United States and its allies in the region. Let's go back to uh, the several months right after the September 11th attacks. Uh, there was a candlelight vigil uh, in Tehran and other Iranian cities. People turned out uh, while Trump was talking about uh, seeing Muslims dancing in the streets in Jersey City, which was a complete fabrication. There was actual solidarity uh, in Iran with the United States. But 
more to the point during that period, during the invasion of uh, Afghanistan, uh, Iran was helpful uh, to the United States. And then in December of 2001 at the Bonn conference, it was instrumental in getting Hamid Karzai seated. It put pressure on its uh, allies in Afghanistan to do that, uh, quote unquote, favor uh, to, for the U.S., then in the following month in the State of the Union address, Iran is labeled as an axis of evil state. So this must have been music to the ears of the hardliners who said, look, you try and help the Americans. This is what you get. I think what you see as a result of U.S. policy under the Bush administration, um, Bush 43, was that the um, policies that were pursued by the Bush administration after 9-11 inadvertently played into the narrative of Iranian hardliners, whose position has always been, you can't trust the United States, you can't negotiate with them, they will always betray you. If you give them an inch, they will take a mile. We need to sort of rally around the revolutionary flag, and we have to constantly be vigilant um, because the United States is coming out to get you. The other faction within Iran, the faction associated with uh, the reform movement, Khatami, and I would also include Rouhani, um, and Zarif and other people. That has actually a lot of broad support. Zarif is the foreign the minister. foreign minister. Um, a lot of broad support. The reformist position calls for engagement with the United States, resolving tensions through diplomacy. But when Bush makes that speech, um, and when Iran seemed to be sort of pursuing policies in Afghanistan that overlapped with America's interests. In other words, Iran had no interest in supporting the Taliban. They almost went to war with the Taliban in 1998. There was no, um, there was no reciprocity. I mean, actually, there was almost a slap in the face. And so that, of course, um, you know, again, um, was an opportunity for hardliners to sort of take advantage of um, the narrative within Iran and to sort of repeat these um, age-old slogans about um, the need to be vigilant and the need to reject American offers of diplomacy. Not that there were many forthcoming to begin with, but to take a very hardline stance with Iran's relations with the outside world. Uh, talk about how uh, the republic's uh, economy is structured and, and the role of the uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps as a significant player in the economy. Iran's economy has been accurately described by experts, experts who study the topic as um, comprised of sort of three different sectors, a public sector, a private sector, and then a semi-state sector. And the semi-state sector is comprised of a number of religious and revolutionary foundations that have a lot of wealth, that have their own internal accounting um, um, processes um, that are not accountable to anyone, employ tens of thousands of people, and they are involved in economic production. Part of that semi-state aspect of the Iranian economy also includes the role that the Revolutionary Guards play in Iran's economy. Um, they um, they own hotels, they own construction firms, they're involved in business activity. And, you know, it, it's be, because Iran is a closed political system, it's difficult to sort of talk with precision in terms of how much of the economic production is in the control of the Revolutionary Guards. But it's widely believed to be roughly 40%. The biggest sector of economic production is in the hands of these Revolutionary Guard affiliated companies who have a huge, vast network of of clients that they serve, uh, who they employ in exchange for loyalty, in exchange for benefits. And this is actually one of the reasons why I think the regime has a solid 
base of support. It's a minority support, but there's a lot of people whose livelihoods, whose jobs are dependent on maintaining the political and economic status quo. So just to cite one example, there was a very famous case where a contract was given to a Turkish um, uh, cellular phone company to build a network of cell phones uh, in Iran. Um, The deal was signed. The Revolutionary Guards protested. Eventually, the deal was broken, and the um, uh, contract was then given to the Revolutionary Guards to um, to develop a cellular phone system. This is the type of influence that they um, that they have, and it's very difficult to rein them in because they are so deeply integrated into the DNA of the Islamic Republic. Um, and so, they're a big part of the economy. They're also a big part of why Iran's economy f- does not function up to the level that many people hoped it would. So the standard narrative that you hear is that the reason why Iran's economy is in uh, shambles is because of external sanctions. That's a big part of the story, particularly under Trump. But the other aspect is internal corruption, is the absence of an open business climate where there can be clear rules, where, you know, private businesses can bid on contracts and there can be some fair regulation of that type of um, business activity. So that's a big part of the story. In Washington's proclamation declaring the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as a terrorist organization, uh, they say, we will continue to increase financial pressure and raise the costs on the Iranian regime for its support of terrorist activity until it abandons its malign and outlaw behavior. This term malign actor, bad actor, comes up over and over again in discussions about Iran, even in very polite Discourse, by the way, National Public Radio, uh, PBS's NewsHour, it's, it's a given that Iran is engaging in malign behavior, unlike the United States, for example. Or as allies in the region. I mean, I mean, this is one of the problems when it comes to this particular narrative. So my response is, yes, Iran is involved and has contributed to destabilizing the Middle East. I think it's most guilty in terms of what it has done in Syria over the last eight years, where it has been backing a repressive regime and it has been complicit and participating in war crimes and crimes against humanity. Um, so Iran is, I think, very guilty there. And it's, I think, also guilty in terms of furthering sectarianism in Iraq. But I think um, in other theaters of conflict, in Yemen, Iran's role is grossly exaggerated. I think in um, Lebanon, it has played a role in terms of supporting Lebanese Shia forces um, in the form of Hezbollah. And so I think it has played a polarizing role there. But I think if one takes a step back and one wants to objectively understand the roots of instability in the Middle East, this narrative that you hear from Washington and that has sunk deep roots in American political culture, that the reason why the Middle East is unstable is because of Iran's malign activity is just a gross distortion. There are other actors who've contributed to Middle Eastern instability, Saudi Arabia being a big part of the problem, the United Arab Emirates being a big part of the problem, and also what doesn't get discussed is the state of Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu, the ongoing oppression and suppression and dispossession of the Palestinians, that has been a longstanding destabilizing factor. So to focus all on Iran, I think, completely distorts the objective reality of why the region is unstable. 
The Guardian has published a a map of U.S. forces uh, in the Middle East, uh, literally surrounding uh, Iran in Kuwait, in Turkey, in Iraq, in the UAE, in uh, Djibouti, in Qatar, in Bahrain, in Saudi Arabia, in Jordan. I mean, this goes on and on. Yet, uh, you know, Iran is defined as a rogue state uh, committing, you know, acts of international terrorism. In fact, Another frequent refrain is the leading world sponsor, state sponsor of terrorism. I agree. That narrative, you know, again, wants to put all of the spotlight on Iran for engaging in destabilizing activity, which I want to emphasize they have engaged in destabilizing activity. But of course, they're not the only actor who pursued and promoted acts of terrorism, destabilization. Um, The point that you just made with reference to the Guardian article is one that's worth thinking about. You know, Iran has not surrounded the United States with military bases and naval aircraft. We've done that to Iran because there's just an inbuilt assumption that the United States is allowed to do things in terms of its projection of power that no other country in the world is allowed to do. Um, because we are the United States and we, you know, allegedly are standing up for these, you know, great values. But I think if you were to ask many people in the Middle East what they think about U.S. foreign policy toward the region and the values that the United States claims to stand for, you would get a lot of pushback. It seems that uh, Pompeo, the Secretary of State, former CIA director, former congressman from Wichita, where he was known as the representative from from Boeing, which had a big, uh, which has a big plant in uh, Wichita, and the National Security Advisor John Bolton, they seem to have a particular animus toward uh, Iran. It's even kind of, uh, you know, uh, very. It's very threatening, very bellicose language. I would actually take it a step further, David. It's more than an animus. It's actually an obsession. And it's an obsession that almost um, defies sort of rational explanation. I think part of the reason why you're seeing this extreme level of hawkishness from Bolton and Pompeo is less about, I think, the individuals themselves. Or I think the individuals themselves do ha- are part of the story. I mean, in the case of Pompeo, he's known to be a Christian fundamentalist, right? He gave a statement not too long ago in the context of um, an interview with a, um, uh, an evangelical television station where he actually said that it's you know, within the realm of the possible that God has sent Donald Trump to save Israel from Iran. So this is the level of thinking of Pompeo. He does have these deep ties to um, U.S. weapons manufacturers. I think that's part of the constituency that is sort of strongly supportive of supporting arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. In the case of Bolton, I think uh, it is about his own individual personal hawkishness, but it's also about the ties and relations that he has with very nefarious forces, both in Washington, D.C., and in the region. I mean, it's an interesting question to ask, how did John Bolton become the national security advisor to the president of the United States? And if you read Dexter Filkins' recent um, report in The New Yorker on um, John Bolton, he comes pretty close to saying that the reason why H.R. McMaster was replaced and Bolton was put in his place was because of strong support from Sheldon Adelson, the hawkish you know, multi-billionaire who has, you know, these fanatical views on Israel, um, insisted that, you know, um, uh, Bolton is our man 
and if you get Bolton in that position, we will support you, Donald Trump. So there is this constituency of right-wing, hawkish supporters of Benjamin Netanyahu in the United States who are a big part of the the Bolton, I think, narrative, the Bolton push for war. But that's also complemented by the regional actors in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and then, of course, Israel are big allies of the Trump administration, big allies of Pompeo and Bolton, and they are part of the voices, I think, that are pushing for war. I don't think you can understand um, what's happening today with the possibility of a war with Iran without taking into consideration these constituencies, these actors who have their own lobbyists in Washington, D.C., who have a lot of influence in Congress, who have now the ear of the president pushing for war. And that's why I think uh, the moment that we're going through right now is probably the most dangerous moment we've ever seen in terms of uh, U.S.-Iran relations with the prospects of, you know, a war on the horizon, it seems, between now and the next presidential election. I say that because, you know, I've, I've read the literature and I've read the statements of these people very closely. They see this as a golden opportunity that might not exist after November 2020 with a new president. This is the moment where all the stars seem to be aligned in a perfect sort of row that would allow for this uh, possible military attack on Iran. Pompeo also has said that everything he does is informed by the Bible. I think this is one of the the, the, the most dangerous and I think um, elements of the current Trump administration is the role and the influence that evangelicals have, you know, on this uh, administration, particularly with respect to the Middle East. I mean, on the question of Israel-Palestine, they have fanatic views. You know, the the American ambassador um, made a similar statement to Pompeo that you know, you know, God is on the side of you know Israel and on the side of Netanyahu. That's you know, David Friedman. That's right. Yeah, the, the, the American ambassador. This is the the arguments that are being sort of invoked to justify American policy that make no rational sense, and it just is another reason to be you know very very concerned about where where we're headed in terms of um, U.S intervention relationships with the Middle East. Well, uh, talk a bit about what seemed to have been a a really shining moment in uh, uh, U.S.-Iran relations and Iran's relations with the five permanent members of the Security Council and the European Union and Germany in the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the so-called Iran deal, which was painstakingly negotiated uh, and signed in the summer of uh, 2015. Incidentally, the foreign minister of Iran uh, happens to be a, a former graduate of the University of Denver, where uh, you happen to teach. But it was seen as a, as a, a really uh, important step to bring, uh, Rouhani was talking about uh, uh, bringing, normalizing Iran's relationship with the rest of the world and getting relief from the punitive sanctions that had been uh, imposed. In May of 2018, uh, Trump uh, reneges on the deal, abandons it, says we're not going to uh, you know, go along with it. And a year later, almost exactly a year later, uh, tr- more troops are being sent uh, to the Middle East. The sanctions are ratcheted up even further. Uh, and the uh, possibility of some kind of peaceful resolution uh, seems to have uh, diminished. Now, the big question is, what is Europe going to do? What is China and Russia are they going to do? Are they going to buckle down? Are they going to buckle under U.S. pressure? Well, that's a great question. Um, officially, the position of the other signatories of the um, Iran nuclear agreement, they're officially committed to the deal. 
Iran is still officially committed to the deal, although it did make a statement that it's going to start to um, weaken its implementation of the deal as a result of the pressure that it's facing by um, the United States. Um, one of the things that Iran is demanding is sanction relief, some sort of um, economic package support from the European countries um, in exchange for Iran sticking with the deal. The problem is that these sanctions that the Trump administration has imposed are so comprehensive, are so crippling, that they effectively prevent any type of economic or financial transaction with the United between Iran and the international community. So if you're a company and you're thinking of investing or having some sort of trade relationship with Iran, you have to then make a choice. Do you want to access the Iranian market or do you want to access the American market, being the biggest economic market in the world? So the, the problem that I think Iran is facing right now is that these sanctions are so comprehensive and so crippling that the Europeans are struggling to try and figure out some sort of mechanism to circumvent them so that they won't be then subject to secondary sanctions, which the Trump administration has threatened to do as a way of trying to you know, collapse the Iranian economy possibly in the hope of leading to regime change. Well, what happens, let's say, to neighboring Turkey, which was heavily dependent on uh, Iranian oil? They just announced, Turkey, that it's, they're going to stop you know, purchasing Iranian oil as a result of the pressure that the United States has placed on countries that have traded with Iran. There were these waivers that were given to countries that were purchasing Iranian oil, giving them a period of several months to find other sources of oil or be subject to new American sanctions. The one holdout here is China that still is engaging in uh, the purchase of Iranian oil. And that, of course, overlaps with the trade crisis that exists between China and the United States today. The bottom line here is that Iran's ability to export its oil has shrunk significantly over the last year. Um, the economy is in free fall. The International Monetary Fund predicted that Iran's economy will collapse by 6%. The value of the currency has dropped. So you have this situation within Iran today where literally people are struggling to survive, um, trying to figure out how to make ends meet. Um, and of fear. course, this has enormous, uh, uh, an enormous impact on the struggle for democracy. If you're wondering about your next meal, mm. uh, how you're going to get medicine for your ailing parents, uh, you can't be thinking about uh, social change too much. Oh, exactly. I mean, it has a catastrophic effect on the struggle for democracy in Iran, which is why the indigenous grassroots leaders civil society organizations within Iran were the biggest proponents and supporters of the Iran nuclear deal and are ex extremely critical of um, the policy of sanctions. Just two days ago, at one of the most prestigious universities in Tehran, Alameh Tabotabai University, students had a protest. And the slogans at that protest were very revealing. Um, the slogans were as follows, no to war, no to sanctions, no to authoritarianism, freedom for political prisoners, the policy of sanctions is inhuman, national security is meaningless without freedom and democracy. So you see a mix of both slogans strongly critical of sanctions and of the U.S., but also students directing criticism of the internal repression within the regime. And I think, of course, these two things are deeply linked now because you can't have a struggle for democracy when uh, the economy has collapsed and people are struggling to figure out where their next meal is going to come from. On my last trip to Iran a couple of years ago, I met a you know, 
couple of young people, you know, who had applied to U.S. universities uh, and have, you know, subsequently been uh, denied entry into the United States because of the uh, travel ban and they were so disappointed and, uh, you know, spoke in admiring terms about the U.S. and what a great opportunity it would be uh, to study there. You must know with your friends and connections uh, in Iran of similar cases. Uh, Many cases. I'm personally familiar with. It happens right now that there is a student of mine at the University of Denver who um, was accepted into our master's program. He couldn't come in September because of Trump's travel ban against, you know, five Muslim majority countries. Um, He arrives here right at the time when sanctions are starting to take a deep effect. He can't pay his tuition. He's struggling to make ends meet. Um, And so what you see is that, you know, a lot of Iranians, as you just mentioned, admire um, American society, the education system, the freedoms that exist. They don't admire the foreign policy because in this case, the foreign policy at this moment is crippling and hurting Iranians. The foreign policy in the 20th century overthrew uh, Iran's democratically you know, uh, elected prime minister, uh, supported a repressive regime. So you have, I think, um, a sense among young Iranians that many of them you know, want to come to the United States, want to study, want to be engaged with the global community. But because of policies... Uh, coming out of Washington, D.C., that's incredibly difficult. So I think there is this um, this sense that, you know, um, um, the United States in many ways has not been, in terms of its policies, really interested in supporting the average Iranian citizen. I mean, I can tell you many other stories of how policies that the United States has pursued inadvertently hurts the average citizen. Something as simple as opening a bank account is extremely difficult if you happen to be Iranian living in the United States because if the bank finds out there's any transfer of money from your parents, in often cases it's just money being transferred from Iran to pay tuition, the bank account gets shut down. Um, You can't travel to the United States. I mean, this is one of the ironies of Trump's claim, Pompeo's claim that we want to support the Iranian people. If you really want to support the Iranian people, then why is there a travel ban on Iranians from coming to the United States? So none of the rhetoric of the um, Trump administration really makes sense. And of course, once again, it's the average citizen um, who is uh, suffering from these policies. What about medical supplies? Medical supplies are also subject to sanctions. Not officially, but when you follow the ability of Iranians to access medicines for a lot of basic health you know, um, problems that people have, it's incredibly difficult. So you're starting to see... Um, um, f- physician organizations, um, hospitals in Iran, citizens who are dependent on medicines that previously were much more easy to access, now complaining about the inability to access these medicines that you know are resulting in a lot of unneeded suffering. Now, the question has to arise, given the, the allegations made by such distinguished representatives in the Senate as Tom Cotton and Lindsey Graham and others of the grave threat that Iran poses to the United States. Why would Iran risk being demolished uh, in any kind of conflict with uh, the U.S., which has overwhelming uh, military force? Do you know how much the Iranian military budget is? 
I mean, it's almost a joke. It's like $15 billion or something. It's incredibly small compared to not just the U.S. budget, but many of the budgets of the neighboring countries. That Saudi serve, Arabia. Saudi Arabia, exactly. United Arab Emirates, way far ahead yeah. than what Iran spends on its military. Yeah, I think this these statements that you hear from Tom Cotton and from Lindsey Graham, they make no sense. In fact, what they do is they actually remind me of the rhetoric that we heard in this country in the 1980s with respect to Central America and Latin America, that the reason why this region is so stable is that you have these threats that are threatening not just the region, but the United States coming from Nicaragua and coming from, you know, Cuba. And this is the reason why, you know, we have to sort of invest and support military dictatorships in the region. It's almost hook, line and sinker, sinker, a similar narrative that we're hearing, a gross exaggeration of Iran's threats to the United States as a way of justifying um, arms sales to allies, support for authoritarian regimes and maintaining the status quo. Uh, Now, I don't want to sort of diminish the repressive nature of the Islamic Republic, the way it treats its people, the way it treats its minorities, what it's done in Syria and other parts of the Middle East. Those are all true. But the claim that the Islamic Republic is posing a threat to the United States of America today that merits this type of rhetoric, that's not believable. You're listening to Nader Hashimi on the slide to war with Iran. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling... 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Well, you mentioned uh, analogies with the 1980s. What about the early 2000s and the attack on uh, Iraq and all the hysteria that we were subjected to in 2002 and 2003 about mushroom clouds and uh, mobile chemical labs and weapons of mass destruction? Yes, it seems like deja vu all over again, doesn't it, David? Sort of the lead up to the war, the attempt to portray Iran as, you know, the um, a threat to the United States, but a threat to the entire region unless it's contained um thankfully that we have you know 2003 you know in 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 the background to these debates so now there's much more i think opposition much more criticism both in congress among some democrats but in the broader society i mean even when you have someone um like david Frum writing a piece in the atlantic saying i made a mistake in 2003 i got us and contributed to that war. Let's not make the same mistake today with Iran. That's an important, I think, intellectual and political development that people so close to the Bush administration, so part of the 2003 Iraq war narrative, are now issuing mea culpas and saying, look, let's not make the mistake again. So I think in that sense, um, there is some cause for optimism. Um, of course, on the other side of the ledger, you know, we have Bolton, we have Pompeo, we have these actors in the region, Israel, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, who are really gunning for war. And of course, the only thing that is really preventing, I think, a rapid escalation toward war, ironically, is the figure of Trump himself, who has issued, you know, contradictory statements. But basically, the one line that seems to be consistent is that he wants to have this dialogue with Iran. 
in contrast to his hawkish, you know, um, national security advisor. He wants, and I don't think he really wants to have a resolution of the conflict. My understanding of Trump, he wants what's best for his ego. And so if he can get another North Korea summit where he'll get a lot of publicity, get a lot of sort of, you know, attention, that's what he's sort of gunning for. Um, But, I mean, I'm willing to bet that he's never actually read the Iran nuclear agreement. He says he wants a new agreement. He just wants – he said actually several times, we just don't want Iran to have nuclear weapons. Well, first of all, they don't have nuclear weapons. Second of all, there was an agreement in place that Iran was complying with, according to everyone who studied the topic, that prevented them from making any progress. So So when Trump claims that he wants Iran just not to have nuclear weapons and then we can solve all our problems, that doesn't make – any sense. But, you know, we do have this internal policy debate, I think, in the White House between these hawks who are, you know, really uh, trigger happy. And then we have the figure of Trump himself, who hasn't signed on yet, I say, uh, to uh, a military strike against Iran. But I suspect that the, um, the agenda very much among the war hawks is to try and convince the president that that's actually could be a good thing for his reelection. Well, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency based in Vienna, the UN organization which monitored the Iranian site, said that the country was in full compliance with the conditions of the Iran deal. Not just that, but but Trump's own members of his cabinet um, uh, prior to pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal, consistently said that, that you know Iran is living up to the terms of its agreement. Jim Mattis had said that. H.R. McMaster has said that. It's, I mean, there's, some things are controversial when it comes to Middle East politics, U.S.-Iran relations. This is one issue where there is zero controversy. Iran has lived up to its obligations under the Iran uh, nuclear agreement, you know, to the letter. And what did you make of uh, the president's boast that, you know, it will be the end of Iran uh, if they get involved in uh, some kind of a war with the United States. It seems to be, you know, a genocidal threat. It's very, I think, obviously a point of deep concern that the president is effectively threatening to annihilate Iran for no rational reason that anyone can think of. But then again, I think it just the takeaway here is that it just highlights how volatile this president is. In the lead up to that statement, he was calling for some sort of, you know, negotiation with Iran. They should call me. They should call me. In fact, the Swiss, the the president of Switzerland was in town. He sort of talked about, uh, he passed on a number to give to the Swiss who represent Iran's interests, the United States interests in Iran. He makes this statement about threatening to annihilate Iran. And literally the next day, he starts talking about negotiations. So um, anyone who thinks that somehow the president is a stabilizing element in the White House that can be uh, relied on to prevent the slide to war, I think really needs to think again. I mean, my own reading of the president, you know, I I suspect he couldn't identify Iran on the map if he had to. He clearly hasn't read the Iran nuclear agreement. And the big concern is that he can be easily manipulated by much more sinister um, uh, individuals within his inner orbit. Um, Bolton, Pompeo, Kushner, and his close allies in the region, who I think have a lot of influence over him. So I think um, the erratic nature of this president, his statements that are incoherent and inconsistent, you know, does not leave one with a lot a sense of security that somehow this 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 potential conflict can be contained. Uh, the U.S. has diplomatic relations with some of the most notorious regimes on the face of the earth. Why not establish diplomatic relations with Iran as a kind of easy first step? That's a great question. I think it's very difficult to have diplomatic relations with Iran today under the Trump administration when you're threatening uh, a military attack 
your your national security advisor and many people in your cabinet are openly calling for regime change. So to have some sort of diplomatic, I think, relationship with Iran would require would require as a precondition some sort of resolution of this current moment. Um, I think there was a serious possibility uh, under the Obama administration, had those policies continued, that eventually back-channel negotiation would perhaps lead to diplomatic relations somewhere down the road. But I think there's an interesting element that's not sufficiently acknowledged. There's strong opposition in Iran today against diplomatic negotiations and relations with the United States for reasons that have to do with internal Iranian politics and the identity that shapes and unites hardline factions around opposition to the United States. So I think under the current supreme leader in Iran, I can't see diplomatic relations ever taking place. Um, but perhaps down the road, I mean, the Supreme Leader in Iran is 80 years old, he's going to pass from the scene sometime over the next decade. And so possibly, um, you know, there could be an option an o- an opportunity down the road, but not at this current moment when you're, you know, crushing the economy, threatening regime change and trying to sort of um, um, attack Iran militarily, economically, psychologically, etc. You happen to be a Canadian of Iranian uh, origin, and you wrote a paper actually to the Canadian House of Commons where you made some uh, specific recommendations in terms of what Canada could do, but let's say some other country could do as well, the U.S., in terms of promoting human rights in uh, Iran. I testified before the uh, subcommittee on uh, international uh, affairs and human rights um, a couple of weeks ago. In, um, In Ottawa? In Ottawa, that's correct. Um, and the pers- perspective that I presented was the perspective of what do human rights and pro-democracy activists in Iran want from Canada and by extension from the international community. And so I provided at the end of my statement uh, a series of uh, you know bullet points, effectively, recommendations to the government of Canada that I think represent a broad consensus among human rights activists within Iran in terms of how Canada's foreign policy should be calibrated to better help people who are on the front line of the struggle for human rights and democracy in Iran. And the first point that I mentioned was that I think um, Iranian human rights activists want Canada to shine a spotlight on Iran's human rights record, to identify and support human rights defenders who are in jail, who've been imprisoned, who've had their reputation tarnished. They, they, they want that type of, I think, support from Canada. But also... I think um, human rights activists in Iran completely, uniformly, without any exception, oppose these policies that we're seeing coming out of the Trump administration. Threats, sanctions uh, against you know the average citizen, calls for regime change. That's, I think, a red line that most human rights activists, pro-democracy activists, respect. And they want Canada to be supportive of a strong rejection and repudiation of what we're seeing today coming out of the United States. For obvious reasons, you can't have a human rights movement. You can't have a pro-democracy movement when your country is being threatened with war, when the economy has collapsed, when your energy and efforts are on economic survival as opposed to political organizing. So that's, I think, a red line. You know, those are some of the the key points that I think, you know, you see coming up time and time again. The other point that I think is important to acknowledge in terms of the struggle for human rights and democracy in Iran is that there's no quick fixes here. 
that you can't sort of flick a light switch and sort of have a democratic transition overnight or a vastly improved human rights situation. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes patience. Uh, the struggle for democracy in Iran, as one prominent Iranian scholar has noted, is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Um, but Canada, I think, and other members of the international community can be, I think, doing a much better job to help Iranian human rights activists. One way they can do that is by trying to be more morally consistent in terms of their own human rights record. Um, you know, the Iranian regime silences and criticizes and rejects Canadian criticism of Iran's human rights record by pointing out how Canada generally has been silent on other countries in the region who are also engaged in human rights violations. So when Canada is very silent, both publicly and at the UN, in terms of not criticizing what Israel is doing in Gaza, that actually undermines Canadian credibility because it doesn't demonstrate consistency in terms of Canada speaking uniformly. When Canada, you know, does not speak out against the just the horrendous human rights situation in Egypt today under General El Sisi, where you have 60,000 political prisoners, you have effectively a fascist government in power, and Canada and other members of the international community, not only do they say nothing about it, but in the case of the European Union, there's a lot of support for General El Sisi as a voice for stability and prosperity, um, ruling over Egypt, when the truth is it's the exact opposite. And what all of this does, it reminds me exactly the type of rhetoric that we heard from Western governments toward the Shah of Iran, that the Shah was a liberalizer, the Shah was a modernizer, the Shah was our friend in the region, the Shah had, you know, progressive views on sort of uh, social issues, women, minorities, etc. But of course, the Shah was a brutal dictator, and the Shah was presiding over a very repressive regime. In many ways, people forget, we have this problem with Iran today, the United States and the West has a problem with Iran today, because we backed a brutal dictator for decades upon decades that set the stage for the 1970s. 79 revolution, which is why Erevand Abrahamian, who you had on this show, says that if you want to understand 1979, the revolution that took place there, you have to go back to 1953. And it was the Shah who wanted to develop a nuclear power for Iran. And the United States was basically supportive of that. I mean, I would, I'm of the view that had uh, the revolution not taken place in Iran, I Iran would have become a nuclear power under the Shah of Iran, and the United States would be basically happy with it. What do you make of this notion of a Shia Ark? Uh, the Shia Ark is a, a term that was coined by the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, you know, King Abdullah, in 2004, uh, claiming that Iran was now taking over the Middle East. It was a reflection, I think, of the changing regional dynamics in the Middle East that took place primarily in Iraq after the American invasion that led to, ironically, the rise of Shia political parties in Iraq that had close connections with Iran. And so there was this deep fear among the authoritarian regimes in the region that were all pro-American, that were um, status quo states in the sense they did not want political change, they did not want political openness, they did not want free elections. There was a fear that politicized forms of Islam modeled on the revolutionary example of Iran was taking over the region. And of course, there was an attempt to sectarianize that development by putting a Shia stamp on it. I think what the real fear of the 
king of Jordan, king Abdullah of Jordan, the real fear of the House of Saud in Saudi Arabia, the real fear of the dictators in the United Arab Emirates. It's not Shia Islam, but it's politicized forms of Islam that are challenging authoritarian regimes, deeply entrenched status quo states that are allied by the United States and are calling for political change, which is why you see exactly the same type of criticism directed against Iran as being some sort of responsible from some sort of Shia arc of um, uh, projection of power. These same regimes are obsessed with um, the Muslim Brotherhood, calling their Sunni, right? They're all considered terrorist organizations. There's an attempt to now... um, convince the United States that the Muslim Brotherhood should be a terrorist organization because these are these are regimes that don't believe in sharing power, don't believe in political change. Dissent. Dissent at all. I mean, they're effectively political tyrannies. But I think the reason why they're so obsessed with Iran is because in 1979, Iran demonstrates an alternative uh, example of how Muslims can behave in some sort of politicized manifestation that challenges deeply entrenched regimes in the region. And they, and, and, and of course, these countries, these what I call them the axis of Arab autocracies, I think naively believe that if somehow Iran can be contained or crushed, then they won't have any more political problems within their own societies. But if you just think about it for a moment, the Arab Spring revolts and protests that broke out throughout the region had nothing to do with Iran. They were all about internal objections to tyranny, lack of social justice, political authoritarianism. People were revolting because they wanted a better future. And in fact, the model that people were pointing to was not the Islamic Republic of Iran. It was um, it was Erdogan in Turkey when he was you know observing democratic norms. This is prior to the 2013 Gezi Park protests where things went in a deeply authoritarian direction. That was the model that many people in um, some of these Arab countries we're pointing to. So to blame this all on Iran, as if somehow Iran is responsible for political dissent and opposition, is, I think, a gross distortion. But it's part of the obsession that many of these authoritarian regimes have. And, of course, one of the responses that these authoritarian regimes, one of the strategies of regime survival, uh, is to play the sectarian card. Play the sectarian card by trying to mobilize people around sectarian identities to shift the conversation away from dictatorship, democracy, demands for political change, and make it seem like, you know, the Shiites are taking over and we have to, we Sunnis have to mobilize around that narrative. And Iran becomes kind of what Edward Said would call the other, you know, non-Arab, non-Arabic speaking, uh, quite different uh, ethnically, culturally, civilizationally, uh, had developed along different lines from Arab countries, and yeah, the, and, and then the attempt to then use that perceived sense of otherness to mobilize people around a narrative that these people they're really not Muslim, they're really not part of us. They represent this um, heresy, heresy, yeah. yeah, theological heresy. But also, if you listen to the rhetoric that comes out of Saudi Arabia, there is this constant reference that Iranians are fire worshippers. They're not really Muslims. There's Rastrians, there's sort of this other sort of, you know, force. Sometimes you'll hear the term Safavid thrown into the equation, being the, you know, the, the 16th century power that came to Iran. Um, that made Shia the national, national religion. religion. So the attempt to sort of create. Um, now, of course, 
in closed authoritarian societies, when you control the narrative, at least the official narrative on state television, it's easy to do that. But also, you know, Iran has played a role in Syria that's very destructive in Iraq that has, you know, contributed to sectarianism. But of course, these regimes amplify that, use those policies as a way of fundamentally shifting attention away from their own corrupt and incompetent rule and to try to place it all on Iran's doorstep. Well, if you could close your eyes for a moment, imagine what a rapprochement would look like between uh, Iran and the United States. I don't think there could be a serious diplomatic rapprochement unless policies changed in a fundamental way um, in both countries. That would require a new president. It would also require, people don't realize this, some sort of major change in Congress. Because if you know anything about the view in Congress with respect to Iran, it's incredibly hawkish. It's incredibly in favor of, you know, a um, almost a war footing, really squeezing Iran. People forget that in the you know negotiations on the Iran nuclear accord, Trump had to um, every 90 days issue a series of waivers preventing the enforcement of American sanctions because Congress had already decided we want to sanction Iran. But according to the Constitution, the president had the right to stop that from happening. That gives you a sense that, you know, it's not just the president of the United States, but it's the Congress and, of course, the lobby groups that support candidates in Congress that are in favor of a very hawkish position. That has to change. Then there's the other side of the equation. It takes two to tango. I don't think, given the current structure of power within Iran today, there can be serious steps toward rapprochement and diplomatic relations for reasons that are poorly understood, but largely, to make a long story short, hardline groups within Iran uh, rally around a common sort of narrative, and that is opposition to the United States. So the idea of diplomatic relations between the two countries would fundamentally undermine this core aspect of the hardline constituency in Iran that predicates its entire worldview in in its activity on rejection of the United States. And so this this benefits them in many ways, one way of crushing dissent in Iran. So the way that dissent is crushed in Iran is you arrest someone and you tarnish him by saying he's a CIA agent. He's getting money from external... If you have diplomatic relations with Iran, you have exchanges, it becomes much more difficult to blame all of Iran's problems on external forces. So I think there would have to be also some serious fundamental political change within Iran itself for there to be, you know, um, a rapprochement of a significant nature. Well, have you identified, you know, those forces within Iranian society that could uh, generate uh, the change that you're calling for? Well, I think broadly the population supports that type of political rapprochement, which is why in many ways vast majority of Iranians voted for Rouhani because he campaigned on sort of the platform of resolving the nuclear question, try to integrate Iran into the national community and resolve tensions with the United States. But of course, we'd have to get into a discussion on the dynamics of Iran's political system where the president has very limited power in terms of pursuing foreign policy. Those decisions, particularly on relations with the United States, um, take place at the level of the supreme leader. And until the supreme leader is in favor of relations with Iran, and the current supreme leader is not, and he's very adamant. In fact, if you want to know a story, he gave a speech not too long ago where he was reflecting upon who his successor would be. And he said that the successor to my position as supreme leader might have different a different style of government, might sort of emphasize different themes. But one issue that I hope 
this is Khamenei speaking, that my successor will have. One issue that I hope he never changes his position on is opposition to the United States. So ultimately then, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is not the short term. It's very bleak. What gives me hope on the American side is despite this dark moment that we are going through uh, with the Trump presidency, the Bernie Sanders campaign gives me hope. You know, who would have thought just even five years ago that we'd be having a national conversation where many potential candidates have basically incorporated large segments of the Bernie Sanders campaign on health care? Universal health care. Now it's a serious issue. Before it was, you know, just dismissed as a joke. That gives me some hope, but it's still a big uphill battle. But also within Iran, if you talk to young Iranians, if you um, engage with them, if you travel to Iran, you'll see that um, there's a lot of young people who form the majority of society, very educated, very globalized, and very moderate in terms of their views of the world. They want to engage with the international community. They want to travel with the United States. They want a better government in Tehran that is more reflective of um, the, the aspirations of most Iranians. We forget these political changes because the conversation in the United States here is all about Iran's behavior, Iran's activity in the region, tensions with the United States, threats against Israel. But if you go to Iran and you talk to people and you spend some time there, you'll see that the battle for ideas... Is, is over in Iran. And those ideas have overwhelmingly, be won, overwhelmingly have been won by reformist forces, by democratic forces who believe in certain fundamental basic principles. Democracy, universal human rights, the separation of religion and state. I think this is one of the lessons that many Iranians have learned. Of course, they can't articulate them and translate those desires into institutional change because they're living in an authoritarian regime. But I think the values, the political values that you see among young people, both in terms of what they want from their own society, how they view uh, Iran's relationship with the outside world, you'll see a lot of views that I think overlap with um, what I think many Americans want, you know, with their relationship with Iran. Views that are sort of much more rooted in diplomacy, in peace, in international law, in, um, you know, fruitful exchanges between societies, mutual learning. I think, you know, those are my hopes. They're long-term hopes. And the challenge right now is trying to get over this particularly dark moment where it seems like we're on the precipice of a, of a war with Iran. What can people do? Well, I think there's no easy fixes here, right? There's no easy answers. I think fundamentally, uh, Americans have a huge moral responsibility that's on their shoulders to try and prevent the slide to war. We're in an election campaign. I think it matters profoundly who the next president is. We've clearly seen the difference in presidents, why election matters. I mean, you know, the American political system is deeply corrupt, but, you know, who's president deeply matters. Look at what the difference between Obama and Trump. Get involved. I would say if people ask me, what can we do to print a war with Iran, get involved in a local political campaign here in the United States. The other thing that people can do is try and connect with, um, you know, Iranian grassroots human rights organizations and ask them. I mean, one of the things that I've learned a long time ago from listening to actually you, David, was this statement that Noam Chomsky made that deeply affected me, where he rightfully pointed out that before we go prescribing solutions for other societies, thinking that we have all the answers, we have to exercise a little bit of humility and a little bit of, you know, restraint. Don't assume we know what the answer is. Ask people in those societies who are grassroots activists, who are organically connected to their own societies, how can we best help you based on your advice? 
I think that's a general rule of thumb that I, that, that I apply to sort of all questions of international affairs, particularly those people who want to get involved in serious activism. Listen to the grassroots, organically connected, internally engaged people who are on the front line of the struggle for human rights and democracy. And it's easy to get in touch with those groups. Um, there are many of them. Some are, some are in Iran. Many are in exile. You can easily contact them. I mean, Iran has a Nobel Peace Prize laureate, Shirin Ebadi, who's quite a you know a principled person. She uh, has given a lot of interviews. You can you can follow what she has to say. Those would be the things that I think people can be doing and should be doing. Quality. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, David. That was Nader Hashemi on the slide to war with Iran. I talked with him in the studios of KGNU on May twenty eighth, twenty nineteen. Nader Hashemi is director of the Center for Middle East Studies and teaches Middle East and Islamic politics at the Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. Now in its 33rd year, we are independent and part of the nonprofit organization Rise Up. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. Every week we feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Noam Chomsky, Ervant Abrahamyan, Winona Laduk, Bill McKibben, and Naomi Klein. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Nader Hashemi, on the slide to war with Iran, call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to KGNU. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening.
My prairie home, my.